p.m. on Friday, May 3rd. That day, we'll be airing features from your favorite API KBOO programmers. Tune in to hear episodes of Lip Fantastic, APA Compass, DMA Roberts' award-winning series, Crossing East, and an all-new Pacific Underground and music playlist by Sun Lee and DJ Diablo. That's Asian and Pacific Islander American Heritage Day, Friday, May 3rd, from 8 a.m. to 4 p.m., only on your community radio station, KBOO Portland. For more information and program schedule, just go to our website at kboo.fm. You are listening to KBOO Portland. The time now is 9 o'clock. Coming up next on Alternative Radio, award-winning playwright and noted stage and screen actor Wallace Shawn talks about artists and social responsibility. At 10, it's Flashpoints, and Dennis Bernstein gives an update on Mumia Abu-Jamal and also his latest episode of the Election Crimes Bolton with Greg Palast. At 11, stage and studio host Mae Roberts talks with two directors opening plays soon. We'll hear from Rebecca Martinez, who's directing Wolf at the Door at the Milagro Theater, and Lava Alapai, director of The Revolutionists at Artist Repertory Theater. And at 11 on Art Focus, host Joseph Gallivan interviews Grace Cook Anderson, curator of Northwest Art at the Portland Art Museum, about the map is not the territory. All of these KBOO programs are made possible by member support. If you'd like to become a member, go to kboo.fm or use our mobile app and click on Donate. KBOO is proud to co-sponsor Village Market's 8th birthday block party celebration on May 4th from noon to 3 at Village Market on North Trenton Street across from McCoy Park. Village Market is a nonprofit of Village Gardens working alongside North Portland community members to build food resiliency through youth leadership, community farming, and good food access. The Village Market birthday block party will include face painting and screen printing, a plant start sale hosted by our community gardeners, raffle prizes, food, plus a bake sale hosted by our youth leadership team, Foodworks. Again, that's Village Market's 8th birthday block party celebration on May 4th from noon to 3 at Village Market on North Trenton Street across from McCoy Park. Learn more at villagegardens.org or at kboo.fm on the right side of the homepage under Community Events. America is particularly reluctant to give the political microphone to artistic people. It's considered scandalous even if a writer expresses his political opinion. In many countries, or most countries of the world, that is not the case at all. People who write fiction or plays and people involved in all sorts of artistic activities are welcomed into the political realm, you know, their thoughts are valued. And I do think that artistic people, because their brains are used in weird ways every day, they have something unusual to offer. That's Wallace Shawn, and this is Alternative Radio. I'm David Barsamian. This edition of AR features Wallace Shawn on artists and social responsibility. Artists, creative people, occupy a special place in our hearts and minds. They interpret the world around us and imagine things outside the box. What is the connection between them and their creative output and society? Is it just to take curtain calls and sign autographs, or is there something more? Pablo Picasso asked the question, what do you think an artist is? An imbecile who only has eyes if he's a painter, ears if he's a musician, or even if he's a boxer, only some muscles. Quite the contrary, Picasso says. He is at the same time a political being, constantly alert to the horrifying, passionate, or pleasing events in the world, shaping himself completely in their image. How is it possible to be uninterested in other men, and by virtue of what cold nonchalance can you detach yourself from the life that they supply so copiously? No, painting is not made to decorate apartments, Picasso said, It's an offensive and defensive weapon against the enemy. Our guest today is Wallace Shawn. 
He's an award-winning playwright and noted stage and screen actor. He starred in the film My Dinner with Andre, and he's the author of Essays and Night Thoughts. This never-before-broadcast classic from the AR archives was recorded at the International Socialist Organization Conference in Oakland, California in 2010. And now, Wallace Shawn. In most reasonably large towns in the United States and Europe, you can find on some important public square or street a professional theater. And so in various quiet neighborhoods in these towns, you can usually also find some rather quiet individuals, the actors who work regularly in that theater. Individuals whose daily lives center around lawns and cars and cooking and shopping and occasionally the athletic events of children, but who surprisingly at night put on the robes of kings and wizards, witches and queens, and for their particular community, they temporarily embody the darkest needs and loftiest hopes of the human species. Maybe we should even close that door, just because that's the showbiz way that we try to create a kind of strange focus. <laughs> the actor's role in the community is quite unlike anyone else's. Businessmen, for example, don't take their clothes off or cry in front of strangers in the course of their work. <laughs> Actors do. Contrary to the popular misconception, the actor is not necessarily a specialist in imitating or portraying what he knows about other people. On the contrary, the actor may simply be a person who's more willing than others to reveal some truths about himself. Interestingly, the actress, who in her own persona may be gentle, shy, and socially awkward, someone whose hand trembles when pouring a cup of tea for a visiting friend, can convincingly portray an elegant, cruel aristocrat tossing off malicious epigrams in an 18th century chocolate house. <laughs> On stage, her hand doesn't shake when she pours the cup of chocolate, nor does she hesitate when passing along the vilest gossip about her closest friends. The actress's next-door neighbors, who may not have had the chance to see her perform, might say that the person they know could never have been under any circumstances either elegant or cruel. But she knows the truth, that in fact she could have been either or both, and when she plays her part, she's simply showing the audience what she might have been if she'd in fact been an aristocrat in a chocolate house in the 18th century. We are not what we seem. We are more than what we seem. The actor knows that. And because the actor knows that hidden inside himself there's a wizard and a king, he also knows that when he's playing himself in his daily life, he's playing a part, he's performing, just as he's performing when he plays a part on stage. He knows that when he's on stage performing, He's, in a sense, deceiving his friends in the audience less than he does in daily life, not more, because on stage he's disclosing the parts of himself that in daily life he struggles to hide. He knows, in fact, that the role of himself is actually a rather small part, and that when he plays that part, he must make an enormous effort to conceal the whole universe of possibilities that exists inside him. Actors are treated as uncanny beings by non-actors because of the strange voyage into themselves that actors habitually make, traveling outside the small territory of traits that are seen by their daily acquaintances as them. 
Actors, in contrast, look at non-actors with a certain bewilderment and secretly think, what an odd life those people lead. Doesn't it get a bit claustrophobic? It's commonly noted that we all come into the world naked, and at the beginning of each day, most of us find ourselves naked once again in that strange suspended moment before we put on our clothes. In various religions, priests put on their clothes quite solemnly according to a ritual. Policemen, soldiers, janitors, and hotel maids get up in the morning, get dressed, go to work, go to their locker rooms, remove their clothes, and get dressed again in their respective uniforms. The actor goes to the theater, goes to his dressing room, and puts on his costume. And as he does so, he remembers the character he's going to play, how the character feels, how the character speaks. The actor in costume looks in the mirror and it all comes back to him. When the actor steps onto the stage to begin the play, he wants to convince the audience that what they're seeing is not a play, but reality itself. The costume that the actor wears and the voice, the diction, the accent, the way of speaking that begin to return to the actor when he puts on the costume are devices designed to set in motion a capacity possessed by every member of the audience a special human capacity whose existence as part of our genetic makeup is what makes theater possible. That is, our capacity to believe what we want and need to believe about any person who is not ourself. Because let's be frank, other people are not me. And people who are not me will always, in a way, be alien to me. They will always, in a way, be strangers to me. And I will never know with any certainty what they're like. So yes, it's possible to believe a fantasy about them. Now, I've never met my own genes or looked at them under a microscope. But nonetheless, I feel I can make some guesses about what they're like. One thing I feel I know is that I'm amazingly responsive to visual cues about other people. And I'm prepared to guess that this is characteristic of our entire species. And this is why people who can afford it spend enormous sums of money on haircuts and clothes. And this is why films, which deal in close-ups, put an enormous amount of attention on makeup and hair. And this is why actors in plays take their costumes very, very seriously. It's all because people really do believe what visual cues say. A haircut dramatically changes how we see a person. A haircut can say, I'm intelligent, disciplined, precise, and dynamic. A different haircut can say, I'm not very bright. I'm sort of a slob. I don't care what happens to me. I don't care what you think of me. There are haircuts that can say, I find sex an interesting subject. I'm interested in how I look. I'm rather fun. And I think life is great. And there are haircuts that say, I'm not interested in sex, and I think life is awful. <laughs> Clothes work in a different way. While the shape of one's head, as completed by one's hair, describes personality, clothes tell us about a person's role in society. But there's an extraordinary similarity in the speed with which we respond to the cues from haircuts and from clothes, and in the strength of our belief that what they're telling us is true. So when the actor comes on stage in the costume of a king, I'm prepared to believe that he is a king. The actor on stage is living in reality. He knows that there is indeed a king inside him, 
But he also knows very well that fate has made him an actor and not actually a king. The audience member looking at the actor on stage steps out of reality and lives in illusion until the curtain comes down. Our capacity to fantasize about other people and to believe our own fantasies makes it possible for us to enjoy this valuable art form, theater. But unfortunately, it's a capacity which has brought incalculable harm and suffering to human beings. It's well known what grief and even danger can result when we make use of this capacity in our romantic lives and eagerly ascribe to a potential partner benevolent characteristics which are based on our hopes and not on truth. (laughs) And one can hardly begin to describe the anguish caused by our habit of using our fantasizing capacity in the opposite direction. That is, using it to ascribe negative characteristics to people who, for one reason or another, we'd like to think less of. Sometimes we do this in regard to large groups of people, none of whom we've met. But we can even apply our remarkable capacity in relation to individuals or groups whom we know rather well, sometimes simply to make ourselves feel better about things that we happen to have done to them or are planning to do. (laughs) You couldn't exactly say, for example, that Thomas Jefferson had no familiarity with dark-skinned people. His problem was that he couldn't figure out how to live the life he in fact was living unless he owned these people as slaves. And as it would have been unbearable to him to see himself as so heartless, unjust, and cruel as to keep in bondage people who were just like himself, he ignored the evidence that was in front of his eyes and clung to the fantasy that people from Africa were not his equals. Well, one could write an entire political history of the human race by simply recounting the exhausting cycle of fantasies which different groups have believed at different times about different other groups. Of course, these fantasies were absurd in every case. After a while, one does grasp the pattern. Africans, Jews, Mexicans, same-sex lovers, women. Hmm. After a certain period of time, somebody says, well, actually, they're not that different from anybody else. They have the same capacities. I don't like all of them. Some of them are geniuses etc., etc. The revelations are always in the same direction. We learn about one group or another the thing that actors quickly learn in relation to themselves when they become actors. People are more than they seem to be. We're all rather good at seeing through last year's fantasies and moving on, and rather proud of it, too. Oh, yes, After voting for Barack Obama, we took a marvelous vacation in Vietnam. We went to a reading of the poetry of Octavio Paz with our friends, the Goldsteins. And we saw Ellen DeGeneres and Portia de Rossi there. They looked fantastic. Whatever. It's this year's fantasies that present a difficulty. Are we more brilliant than Thomas Jefferson? Hmm, probably not. So there's our situation. It's delightfully easy to see through illusions held by people far away or by members of one's own group a century ago or a decade ago or a year ago, but this doesn't seem to help us to see through the illusions which at any given moment happen to be shared by the people who surround us our friends, our family, the people we trust. Around 400,000 babies are born on Earth each day. Some are born irreparably damaged, casualties of the conditions in which their mothers lived, malnutrition, polluted water, mysterious chemicals that sneak into the body and warp the genes, 
But the much more tragic and more horrible truth is that most of these babies are born healthy. There's nothing wrong with them. Every one of them is ready to develop into a person whose intelligence, insight, aesthetic taste, and love of other people could help to make the world a better place. Every one of them is ready to become a person who wakes up happily in the morning because they know they're going to spend the day doing work they find fascinating, work that they love. They're born with all the genetic gifts they could possibly need. Wiggling beside their mothers, they have no idea what's going to be done to them. In the old days of the Soviet five-year plans, the planners tried to determine what ought to happen to the babies born under their jurisdiction. They would calculate how many managers the economy needed, how many researchers, how many factory workers. And the Soviet leaders would organize society in an attempt to channel the right number of people into each category. In most of the world today, the invisible hand of the global market performs this function. I've sometimes noted that many people in my generation, born during World War II, are obsessed, as I am, by the image of the trains arriving at the railroad station at Auschwitz and the way that the SS officers who greeted the trains would perform on the spot what was called a selection, choosing a few of those getting off of each train to be slave laborers who would get to live for as long as they were needed while everyone else would be sent to the gas chambers almost immediately. And just as inexorable as were these selections, are the determinations made by the global market when babies are born. The global market selects out a tiny group of privileged babies who are born in certain parts of certain towns in certain countries, and these babies are allowed to lead privileged lives. Some will be scientists, some will be bankers, some will command, rule, and grow fantastically rich, and others will become more modestly paid intellectuals or teachers or artists. But all the members of this tiny group will have the chance to develop their minds and realize their talents. As for all the other babies, the market sorts them and stamps labels onto them and hurls them violently into various pits where an appropriate upbringing and preparation are waiting for them. If the market thinks that workers will be needed in electronics factories, a few hundred thousand babies will be stamped with the label factory worker and thrown down into a certain particular pit. And when the moment comes when one of the babies is fully prepared and old enough to work, she'll crawl out of the pit and she'll find herself standing at the gate of a factory in India or in China or in Mexico and she'll stand at her workstation for 16 hours a day. She'll sleep in the factory's dormitory. She won't be allowed to speak to her fellow workers. She'll have to ask for permission to go to the bathroom. She'll be subjected to the sexual whims of her boss, and she'll be breathing fumes day and night that'll make her ill and lead to her death at an early age. And when she has died, one will be able to say about her that she worked like a nurse not to benefit herself, but to benefit others. Except that a nurse works to benefit the sick, while the factory worker will have worked to benefit the owners of her factory. She will have devoted her hours, her consideration, her energy and strength to increasing their wealth. She will have lived and died for that. And it's not that anyone sadly concluded when she was born that she lacked the talent to become, let's say, a violinist, a conductor, or perhaps another Beethoven. The reason she was sent to the factory and not to the concert hall was not that she lacked ability, but that the market wanted workers. And so she was one of the ones who was assigned to be one. And during the period when all the babies who are born have been sorted into their different categories and labeled, during the period when you could say that they're being nourished in their pens until they're ready to go to work, 
They're all assigned appropriate costumes. And once they know what costume they'll wear, each individual is given an accent, a way of speaking, some characteristic personality traits, and a matching body type. And each person's face starts slowly to specialize in certain expressions which coordinate well with their personality, body type, and costume. And so each person comes to understand what role he will play, and so each can consistently select and reproduce through all the decades and changes of fashion the appropriate style and wardrobe for the rest of his life. Even those of us who were selected out from the general group have our role and our costume. I happen to play a semi-prosperous, fortunate bohemian. Not doing too badly, nor too magnificently. And as I walk out onto the street on a sunny day, dressed in my fortunate bohemian costume, I pass, for example, the burly cop on the beat. I pass the weedy professor in his rumpled jacket, distractedly ruminating as he shambles along. I see couples in elegant suits, briskly rushing to their meetings. I see the art student and the law student. And in the background, sometimes looming up as they come a bit closer, those not particularly selected out. The drugstore cashier, in her oddly matched pink shirt and green slacks. The wacky street hustler with his crazy dialect and his crazy gestures. The wisecracking truck drivers with their round bellies and leering grins. The grim-faced domestic worker who slipped out from her employer's house and now races into a shop to do an errand. And I see nothing. I think nothing. I have no reaction to what I'm seeing because I believe it all. I simply believe it. I believe the costumes. I believe the characters. And then for one instant, as the woman runs into the shop, I suddenly see what's happening, the way a drowning man might have one last vivid glimpse of the glittering shore. And I feel like screaming out, stop, stop, this isn't real. It's all a fantasy. It's all a play. The people in these costumes are not what you think. The accents are fake. The expressions are fake. Don't you see? It's all one instant and then it's gone. My mind goes blank for a moment, and then I'm back to where I was. The domestic worker runs out of the shop and hurries back toward her job, and once again I see her only as the character she plays. I see a person who works as a servant, and surely that person could never have lived, for example, the life I've lived or been like me, she's not intelligent enough. She had to be a servant. She was born that way. The hustler surely had to be a hustler. It's all he could do. The cashier could never have worn beautiful clothes. She could never have been someone who sought out what was beautiful. She could only ever have worn that pink shirt and those green slacks. So just as Thomas Jefferson lived in illusion because he couldn't face the truth about the slaves that he owned, I too put to use every second of my life, like my beating heart, this capacity to fantasize which we've all been granted as our dubious birthright. My belief in the performance unfolding before me allows me not to remember those dreadful moments when all of those babies were permanently maimed and I was spared. The world hurled the infant who became the domestic worker to the bottom of a pit and crippled her for life, and I saw it happen, but I can't remember it now. And so now it seems quite wonderful to me that the world today treats the domestic worker and me with scrupulous equality. It seems wonderfully right. If I steal a car, 
I go to jail. And if she steals a car, she goes to jail. If I drive on the highway, I pay a toll. And if she drives on the highway, she pays a toll. We compete on an equal basis for the things we want. If I apply for a job, I take the test. And if she applies for the job, she takes the test. And I go through my life thinking it's all quite fair. If we look at reality for more than an instant, if we look at the human beings passing us on the street, it's not bearable. It's not bearable to watch while the talents and the abilities of infants and children are crushed and destroyed. These happen to be things that I just can't think about. And most of the time, the factory workers and domestic workers and cashiers and truck drivers can't think about them either. Their performances as these characters are consistent and convincing because they actually believe about themselves just what I believe about them, that what they are now is all that they could ever have been. They could never have been anything other than what they are. Of course, that's what we all have to believe so that we can bear our lives and live in peace together. But it's the peace of death. Actors understand the infinite vastness hiding inside each human being. The characters not played, the characteristics not revealed. School teachers can see every day that Given the chance, the sullen pupil in the back row can sing, dance, juggle, do mathematics, paint, and think. If the play we're watching is an illusion, if the baby who now wears the costume of the hustler in fact had the capacity to become a biologist or a doctor, a circus performer or a poet or a scholar of ancient Greek, then the division of labor as now practiced is inherently immoral. And we must somehow learn a different way to share out all the work that needs to be done. The costumes are wrong. They have to be discarded. We have to start out naked again and go from there. You're listening to Wallace Shawn on Artists and Social Responsibility. This is Independent Alternative Radio. You can order copies of this program by calling 1-800-444-1977. That's 1-800-444-1977. Or you can order online on our website, alternativeradio.org. That's alternativeradio.org. We now go to audience questions. Um, yeah, I spent about uh, four months of last year in bed recovering from surgery, and I read three books once the painkillers wore off enough that I could concentrate. One of them was uh, the Yiddish Policeman's Union. One of them was the Economics and Philosophic Manuscripts of Karl Marx, and one of them was Wallace Shawn's essay. <laughs> and, and I have to say, like, they almost perfectly uh, went. I started with the Yiddish Policeman's Union, a little bit more light, you know, read Wallace Shawn, and then I could kind of get ready for, for the Karl Marx. My concentration level was up a little bit. But I have to say, of the three books, the one that motivated me the most to want to get up out of bed and do something again was Wallace Shawn's book. And I think what I liked about it in particular is that in our society, it's fairly rare for artists and intellectuals uh, to be anything other than conformists um, because there's so many social pressures that encourage that casually uh, or, or not so casually. And to read something that was so refreshingly honest warm and humorous at the same time, and deeply political reflection in, in public was just really made me, made me want to get up out of bed and actually begin, renew the energy that I put into activism for 15 years. 
And I really want to thank Wallace for, for the contribution that he's making, and I hope he continues to make it. And that was an absolutely incredible. I was wondering, what was your prior political background, and what was the spark that brought you to your current political program? Uh, I, I just wonder if you could comment a little bit about where you think the, the sort of state of, of, of legitimate theater is in this country. It feels to me that it, you know it's almost reflecting a sort of well, like a Hollywood malaise, a, a sort of lack of, of, of spirit and creativity. And I, I wonder a couple of comments about it. Thanks. By the way, I intended this to be a challenge to think of a completely new way to organize society with uh, people not necessarily only playing their one part. I don't know. I mean, this, this could be a poor idea. Obviously, in a very um, primitive, pre-quote-unquote civilized uh, communities, people do that. I mean, they do more than one thing. And I went to a school where uh, the garbage collection and the farming and all sorts of things were done uh, a few hours a day by everybody. Could that work? Because the alternative is so bad. Anybody who has anything to say about this, that would be interesting. Thank you so much for the excellent list of Michael Chabon, Karl Marx, and uh, my book of essays. <laughs> this is, we're planning to package the three. Uh, uh, um, thank you. You asked about my background politically. Let's be frank. I really was raised uh, in a in a, a liberal centrist world everybody that i knew was a uh, a liberal centrist they were very nice people so i had no reason to uh, move beyond that in a way that uh, this was in the 50s. Well, I was born in 43, but in the 50s, my parents were patriotic Americans, but what they believed patriotic Americanism was, was to love the United Nations and to have a very benevolent view toward uh, all the people who were out there somewhere. They didn't know that we were living in an American empire, I would say they didn't have the faintest idea of it, although maybe they didn't want to know about it. Actually, it's very hard for me to uh, know exactly what happened uh, with me. I think uh, at a certain point when I reached, I was over 40 when it began to happened to me. Well, my father once said to me that his moral beliefs were the same as his great-grandmother's. And in a way, my political beliefs are the same as my mother's, except that she didn't realize her own role in the misery of the poor children that uh, she was sympathetic to. And somehow, after the age of 40, I was able to face my own role. Possibly it was because I was actually earning uh, good money. And I, I don't know, I guess I was examining where it was coming from, or I don't know what. But I began to uh, put myself into the portrait of the world and uh, so then the sympathy that my mother felt toward the poor and miserable turned into something else for me uh, and I somehow pulled out of the air an ability to uh, actually hate uh, myself 
and my own class. It's a rare gift. Uh, and uh, it's, uh, it's not actually, uh, you can't control that, but I, somehow it, it, it came over me. And I, I read certain things that I never wanted to read. I'd always thought, well, the history of Latin America is awfully boring. I don't think I'll read that book. And I read certain books that uh, I hadn't wanted to read. And I also somehow was willing to, I mean, let's be frank, when I was uh, 30, if a book was published by Haymarket Books, I would have thought, well, that's, you know, how do I know that's reliable? Uh, that might be not true, those things that they're saying in there. These are not respectable publishers. Um, and somehow I reached a certain age and I thought, it's not going to kill me to read this. Uh, anyway, I read, you know, uh, I didn't read Michael Chabon, but I did read some Karl Marx. My girlfriend, who was, uh, had tried to explain certain things to me many, many decades before, and found she didn't get anywhere, but still I was listening, gave me a copy of uh, uh, Noam Chomsky, which I thought, oh, a lot of, I mean, a lot of, well, what I actually thought was, uh, why, he's discovered the same things as me. Uh, um, as far as breaking out of the roles, you know, that make us do, not only do jobs that we don't want to do, but, but these roles force us to do even jobs that could be wonderful in a sort of awful way. You know, that's why society as a whole has to change before those jobs can be bearable. And there are very few honest jobs that, that you can do. You know, we all have to decide where we're going to draw the line. Some people have the guts to say, well, I'm not going to do anything that I find corrupt. I won't participate. But that takes breaking addictions that are, you know, only one in 100,000 people are willing to break. If you say, well, I'm going to live in incredible uh, poverty, you can avoid dipping your toe in anything corrupt. I respect that. I mean, I admire it, anybody who can do that, but it's extremely rare. And I am, you know, mired in corruption. I have my own lines that I don't cross, but many of you would not cross some of the lines that I do cross in the sense that uh, I, I make a living as an actor and I have my own set of rules, things that I find too nauseating to do, and so I don't do those. But there are things that I have done that some of you might say, well, I thought that that was quite nauseating, <laughs> and uh, you shouldn't have done that, or I have no respect uh, for you if you did do it. On the subject of the possible lack of creativity in the American theater. You know, I don't have an encyclopedic knowledge of American theater, or even theater in New York where I live. It's not a very lively field, to put it mildly, and we could discuss this in a, a smaller room where the 
seven or eight people on earth who are interested uh, could gather and um, yes, theater is uh, is not an inspiring area of artistic accomplishment for the most part, although every once in a while you see something that is uh, absolutely fantastic. It can be an incredible revelatory field. I mean, I don't know if anybody in this room have you ever has anyone here ever seen or even heard of uh, uh, Ariane Manushkin, who does uh, she runs a theater in France called the Théâtre du Soleil that occasionally comes to the United States and even to the West Coast, but uh, you have to read the paper every single day, every word of it. And then you will hear when her theater is coming to San Francisco. Very, very thrilling and inspiring. But obviously, it's, it uh, isn't that well known. One person asked, how did I get to Haymarket Books? It's such an elaborate story. I was interviewed by the New York Times. I'm going to put this in two sentences. I was interviewed by the New York Times, and I, uh, it, was gonna, it wasn't going to be a very long interview. I mean, it wasn't going to be a very long piece. And I said, well, look, just, um, I can't summarize all of my thoughts about the world. I'll just say that I... You know, the person who comes closest to expressing my thoughts about the world is Noam Chomsky. And if anybody wants to uh, know what I think outside of this interview, they should go and read his books. <laughs> and, well, I got into a fight with the New York Times uh, because uh, the editor not the top editor of the Times, the, the sub-editor with whom I was dealing, said, uh, well, we're not going to put that in. I said, well, that's my only way of expressing my thought, and this is a very important part of this interview. So she said, no, we just are not going to put that in. There was a guy who talked about Noam Chomsky only two months ago. Uh, and... Uh, we're not going to turn our whole paper into a kind of uh, an endless uh, discussion of this guy. Uh, and so a kind of amusing exchange of, of letters ensued. Well, they were funny. And uh, I sent the letters to Noam Chomsky to amuse him. And uh, uh, that's how I eventually got to Haymarket Books. Has anyone here ever seen or even heard of the Grand Nagus? The Grand Nagus is a character in Star Trek that I had the honor to play. You may have seen me, but you may not have recognized me. But, but I totally... Uh, you know, uh, share the sentiment that, uh, you know, writers of all kinds and, and artistic people should indeed learn more about the world and how it works. And, uh, well, it's better for everybody to learn how to, you know, write in a, in a readable style that interests people and to tell stories well this is good for marxists and for anybody else uh, it's it's uh, but yes of course it, one of the obviously one of the issues that uh, everybody in this room faces is uh, we understand each other but you know how do we 
communicate our thoughts and feelings to people who uh, don't already think the way we do. How is that done? Uh, I mean, I've run into several people here who have recognized me from my being in the movies or whatever, and uh, I've thought, well, should I invite them to come hear me? And, I, and one voice has said, no, don't be ridiculous. They, they wouldn't, uh, you know, they wouldn't get it. They would just be bored. But I did invite every, all of those people to come. Uh, and, uh, yes, I think, you know, that's a, a crucial, I mean, unbelievably crucial issue. One person asked, in effect, if I've paid a price among my friends for uh, writing the things that I wrote or saying them. Well, actually, my essays are much more popular than my plays. Uh, I already weeded out most people I know uh, because of the plays. But yes, I mean, what I've tried to do in, in writing is I, I really write for my friends. So I don't write in a way that is attacking with hate. It's attacking with a certain affection or a concern. I mean, that is my preferred attitude, if you want to know. I mean, even my essay about Israel, you know, it's not written with hate. It's an attack, but with love for the ones who are being attacked. So, in a way, not that many friends have, who, who were close to me, have distanced themselves from me. There definitely were people who were acquaintances or people who I sometimes would see who I no longer see because they they find me, uh, well, the word that, you know, people would say, uh, well, he's, he's shrill. Uh, or, you know, certainly there are those who felt, well, he used to be more fun. Uh, you know, he he's become overbearing or heavy. And then I, there were a few episodes in my life, but very, maybe just a couple, where I behaved inappropriately in a bourgeois setting. Uh, <laughs> and said things that uh, were not really, uh, that were not appropriate in a way, but that, that I felt compelled to say. And those, there were really only a couple of those episodes, and I, I do play them over and over and over again <laughs> in my head, and, I, and I'm still kind of mixed up about them in a way. I hurt people's feelings, on the other hand, and I behaved, I surprised people. They were expecting me to be one way, and all of a sudden I behaved in a different way, and I hurt people's feelings, and then on the, but on the other hand, what I said was true, and maybe, there are certain times, there are certain, there are certain things that there is no appropriate moment to say to certain people. Uh, and it can only come out inappropriately, and maybe that is uh, for the best or, or not. I, after my death, we can debate it. Uh, America is particularly reluctant to give the political microphone to artistic people. 
it's considered scandalous even if a writer expresses his political opinion. In many countries, or most countries of the world, that is not the case at all. People who write fiction or plays and people involved in all sorts of artistic activities are welcomed into the political realm. You know, their thoughts are valued. And I do think that artistic people, because their brains are used in weird ways every day, they have something unusual to offer. Thank you. You were just listening to Wallace Shawn on Artists and Social Responsibility. This never-before-broadcast classic from the AR Archives was recorded in Oakland, California in 2010. Wallace Shawn is an award-winning playwright and noted stage and screen actor. He starred in the film My Dinner with Andre and is the author of Essays and Night Thoughts. This program is produced by Alternative Radio based in Boulder, Colorado. We are independent and part of the nonprofit media organization Rise Up. We feature progressive voices rarely heard in the corporate media, such as Michael Yates, Dar Jamel, Leilani Farha, Robin Kelly, David Harvey, and Ilan Pape. To access our complete audio and book catalog, just go to our website, alternativeradio.org. Again, our website where we are podcasting, alternativeradio.org. To place a credit card order for CDs, MP3s, PDFs, or written transcripts of today's program, Wallace Shawn on Artists and Social Responsibility, and for his book entitled Essays, call us at one 800 triple four one nine seven seven. Again that number is one eight hundred triple four one nine seven seven. Or you can order on our website alternativeradio.org. Special thanks to the International Socialist Organization. Joe Ritchie is our general manager and editor. I'm David Barsamyan. Thank you for listening. We go out with Bob Dylan. She belongs to me. wonder what happens to your Fred Meyer reward points? Now you can turn them into excellent community radio by linking your Fred Meyer rewards card to KBOO. Look up KBOO or our ID number 86634 at fredmeyer.com forward slash community rewards. Every time you use your card, KBOO will get money. Your rebates, discounts, and gas bonuses are unaffected. With your Fred Meyer reward card, you can turn cheese puffs or office supplies or cat litter into support for KBOO. Go to fredmeyer.com 
forward slash community rewards, all one word, and link your card to KBU. You are listening to KBOO. The time is 9.59. Coming up next on Flashpoints, Dennis Bernstein gives an update on Mumia Abu-Jamal and also covers the latest episode of Election Crimes Bolton with Greg Palast. At 11, stage and studio host Dime Roberts talks with two directors opening plays soon. We'll hear from Rebecca Martinez, who's directing Wolf at the Door at Milagro Theater, and Lava Alapai, director of The Revolutionists at Artist Repertory Theater. At 11.30 on Art Focus, host Joseph Gallivan interviews Grace Cook Anderson, curator of Northwest Art at the Portland Art Museum, about The Map is Not the Territory. All of these KBOO programs are made possible by member support. If you'd like to become a member, go to kboo.fm or use our mobile app and click on Donate. You are listening to KBOO Portland on 90.7 FM, K2A2BH Philomath on 104.3 FM, and K220HR Hood River on 91.9 FM, and on the web at KBOO.FM. It's a concert in Santa Cruz at the Research Center for Nonviolence, but there'll be events all over the, the world. Well, we're, we're, we're looking forward to that. We know that can happen. Um, Welcome to the Best of Flashpoints for the week of April 26, 2019. My name is Mike Biggs. Today on the program, we get an update on the case of Mumia Abu-Jamal. Also, the latest episode of the Election Crimes Bulletin with Greg Pallast. And later, we catch up with Keith McHenry of Food Not Bombs for another installment of our regular series, Food Fight. All this straight ahead on the Best of Flashpoints. Stay tuned. You're listening to the Best of Flashpoints on Pacifica Radio.